Why don't we begin in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the ability to gather together today. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide our discussions. And as we start a new book of Philippians and we read about joy and Paul's joy in spite of being in prison, we just ask that you take what we read today and transform us into the people that you want us to be and help us learn to live our lives in the way that Paul did that in spite of his tribulations, it wasn't the external things that gave him happiness. It was the internal change that had happened inside of him in the presence of the Holy Spirit that gave him pure joy in knowing he would have eternal life with you because he placed his faith in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And so, Father, we just ask that you continue to transform us and change our hearts and give us the hearts that you want us to have and help us reflect you to those that we encounter each and every day. And we also ask that you guide our discussion and let it be your words, not my words. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're starting a new book. We're in Philippians. Let me give you a little bit of background before we get started. Philippians was written by Paul while he was in prison in Rome, probably somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D., And he wrote it to the church in Philippi. That is the area of really northeast Greece. It was part of the Roman Empire. You'll recall that Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem. And his case had been delayed for several years. And two different Roman governors. And then Paul then exercised his rights to appeal to Caesar. This was written after that had all happened. After he had been then imprisoned in Rome. And he was awaiting Nero's final decision. If you're interested in reading more background on that, that's really covered in Acts 21 through 28. A little bit about Philippi. It was the first European city to really hear the Christian ministry. Paul established this church on his second missionary trip. You can read about that in Acts 16. That's where this is described. It begins in about verse 9 through 34. If you want to go look at that, or you'll maybe recall that when we were going through Acts. But it was a very important trade route. It was a very important city in northeastern Greece. What was interesting is Paul, as he was beginning his missionary journey, he wanted to go to the north. He wanted to go to Asia, and the Holy Spirit essentially prevented him from doing that. So he ended up going west, and so this is the beginning of building the church in Europe, which then, of course, would later influence people like John Calvin in the 1500s and Martin Luther also in the 1500s. Calvin was French and Luther was German, but really Luther was the father of the Reformation. A little bit of history about Philippi going way back. In 42 B.C., Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius. Those were the assassins of Julius Caesar, and that happened at Philippi. And so what then happened is Octavian, um, he became emperor in 29 B.C. after he then defeated Anthony and Cleopatra in 31 B.C., just going back into history there a little bit. Eventually then, as I said, Paul then founded the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey. So why don't we begin? We'll start right in in verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. 
So Paul's writing this letter to all the saints, all the believers. Remember, Paul typically refers to the believers as saints. And this letter is very different. I guess we've been studying over the last year or so Corinthians and Galatians, and Paul was addressing theological issues in Corinth and in Galatia. In here, you don't really have that. You'll see this may actually be a type of thank you letter that Paul is writing to the believers in the church in Philippi. They had noticed Paul's absence for a couple of years. They didn't know what had happened to him. And he had been absent for a while because he was arrested in Jerusalem. And so once they then found out where he was, they had actually put together an offering and sent it to him in Rome And so this may be, part of what may be triggering this is Paul writing a letter to thank them for their gift. But you'll also see throughout this letter, because he never addresses any theological issues, we'll see when we get to chapter 4, there was a little bit of a dispute, but it wasn't a theological matter, it doesn't look like. Unlike the letters that we have been reading that Paul wrote, You'll see some of the things that Paul says. He was obviously very close to the people in Philippi, the Christians at the church that he had established there. And they also thought very highly of him. So there's a different tone to this epistle compared to what we've been reading in Corinthians and Galatians. And you'll see that right away as we get into this. So he says he's writing to all the believers in Philippi as well as the overseers, and your translation may say elders, or it may say bishops, as well as deacons of the church there. So he's writing to the entire church body. Verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul typically has this type of introduction in his letters. I love what he says here because It's God's grace that gives us the peace that we now have because he's given us this free gift of our salvation through the gift of his son who died for our sins. And now that we know our sins are forgiven and we're going to heaven, we have eternal life with him, that should give us tremendous peace. And so Paul typically begins his letters this way. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So you can see right off that Paul has a lot of love for the believers in the church in Philippi. He's saying that he thanks God every time he thinks of them. Every time he remembers them, he has positive thoughts about them, and he thanks God for them. He says, verse 4, Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Here Paul is. He's imprisoned. He's facing possible execution And yet, he's just full of joy. He's praying for others. He's thanking God for the believers in Philippi. So he has this tremendous love for them. He says why here. He says in verse 5, In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So he's going back several years when he first established this church. And he has seen their fellowship and their prayer and they're sharing in the gospel to others and supporting each other in the church. And that's what he's referring to as this participation in the gospel. They are walking the walk. They're walking with the Lord. And he gives a lot of thanks for that, and he has tremendous joy even though he's in prison. 
And this next verse is one of my very favorite verses in the Bible. I think this is certainly the key verse in this first chapter. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is, it's the Holy Spirit. It's this gift that we're given. When we become Christians, we've looked at that before. As soon as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit to come live in us and begin to change us and begin to change us into the people that God wants us to be, that he designed us to be. And that's called the sanctification process. That's the process that we go through while we're alive here. And it'll continue up until our death or the rapture when we'll then be perfected and be Christ-like, everything, of course, for the glory of the Lord, not for ourselves. And let me just show you a couple of verses real quick. I could give you a whole bunch of them. We've looked at that quite a few times in the past, but let's just look at a couple of them here. If you'll just, we don't have to go far. We'll be here next week. Go over to Philippians 2, verse 13. You can see it says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so it's God that's working in us right now to give us the will and the way to do good things. And I've showed you this before, too. If you'll just go back over to the left to Ephesians and look at Ephesians 2, verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God is responsible for our good works, which he performs in and through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, I could give you a bunch of verses here, but go all the way to the back. We're going to go to 1 John, right before Revelation at the very back of the New Testament. And I want to look at 1 John, and let's look at chapter 3, verse 2. And it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. So we're going to be conformed to his image and his nature when we complete the sanctification process, when our time here on earth has come to an end. That should give us great confidence. Whenever we're going through difficult things, we should know that God is right there with us. We have that promise, that assurance that he is working in us to make us into the people that he wants us to be. And he's using those difficult times in our life in order to achieve that. If we can just reflect and recall this verse, I think it will bring us greater peace even when we're facing trouble. I don't think Paul is saying that we should have happiness when we're going through difficult times. Happiness is kind of an external thing, if you think about it. It's more of an internal. This joy is an internal joy that we should have because we should have this tremendous peace knowing where we're going to end up, where we're going to spend our eternity, and that our sins have been forgiven. Jesus was very clear that we're going to have difficulties as believers in this life, but God uses those in a way to continue to transform us. Verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So, Paul has tremendous joy and affection for the Christians there in Philippi, 
And all that joy came from the Holy Spirit. If you remember, when we were in Galatians 5, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. So when we have that joy, you can read that in Galatians 5, that joy comes from the Holy Spirit. And we should have that regardless of what's going on externally. And you can see Paul was in prison, yet he still had this joy for the believers in Philippi. Verse 28, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I do want to take a little sidebar right here because it's very clear that Paul was born in Texas. I don't know if anybody's ever pointed this out to you before, but he's used you all two times here. I just wanted to give you that theological truth because there's no way that could come from anywhere else but from a true Texan. So we got two you alls there. That is a plural you for those listening that don't know what I'm talking about. And uh, by the way, I'm just kidding. Paul is not from Texas, but as a Texan, I enjoy that. Uh, Let's see, before I got off on that tangent, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now, there's a lot in here. Let me unpack this just a little bit. First of all, I think Paul is saying this is how we should pray for others. You know, we should pray for other believers' spiritual growth and maturity. And everything that we do is to bring glory to God, not to ourselves. And that's what we should pray, that others don't get filled with pride, that you hope that they grow in their ability to discern what's right and what's wrong, that they don't get taken away by false teachers like we were reading in Galatians and Corinthians recently, and that they're able to discern God's will for their life. And you can get that by growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, by spending time in the Bible, reading Scripture, and in prayer. And so that's what Paul was praying for his fellow Christians, and that's what we should pray for each other as well, that we would gain in knowledge and we would gain in discernment and that we can be sincere. That means acting with integrity, not with hypocrisy, and be blameless. Now, people are always going to say bad things about us, but as long as we're living our life where whatever they're saying, they may be saying bad things, but if they're not true, it doesn't matter. Just live our lives in a way that they can't really find blame in what we're doing, and I know that's our goal. I know I'll sin promptly when I walk out of the door, probably, after this Bible study, but we should ask the Holy Spirit to help us live our lives in that way and be filled with the fruit of righteousness, he says, that only comes through Jesus Christ. When we do have that fruit, it's to bring glory and praise to God, not to ourselves. Let me just show you one verse on that. If you go over to the right, Colossians 1, Colossians 1, verse 9 and 10 For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, this is how we should live our life. The Holy Spirit enables that to happen. It's not us, it's the Holy Spirit bringing that about. 
I wanted to point out a couple other verses real quick. I'm just seeing if we have time. I skipped over it because I wasn't sure we were going to have time, but I do want to show you this. I think this is important because as we were talking about this joy that Paul had and that his confidence that the Holy Spirit was going to complete the good work that had begun in him, I think some of what Paul is saying here as well, that even though he's going through all of this trial and he's in prison and he's having this difficult time, but he's still able to find a way to pray for other people, it's because he had this confidence, this spiritual confidence that he was going to have eternity with Jesus Christ. And let me show you a little backup for that as well. If you'll flip over to the left, And you'll recall this when we were studying the Gospel of John. Go over to John, which is the fourth gospel. So the fourth book in your New Testament, the Gospel of John. Go to John 6. And I just want to show you a few verses because I'm asked sometimes by people, how are you so assured that you're not going to lose your salvation? And Paul always said that he was assured where he was going and we should have that assurance as well. So where does that come from? Well, let's just look at the words of Jesus. We'll begin in verse 35, John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, meaning the Father. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, meaning the Father, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So he's talking about all believers. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So that is the promise. That is what Jesus is telling us. So we are assured of that, and I could go on and on. I've got a whole list here. Let me just show you one other one. Since we're in John, just flip over a couple of chapters. Let's go over to John 10, and let me jump in here at verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Just those verses alone should give us great peace and great assurance that when we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our salvation is secure. And even though we may have some ups and downs and trials and tribulations and maybe even some doubt from time to time, go back and just claim verse 6, because he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the promise that we have. And that's where you see this joy that Paul's talking about. And he can pray for others and have this joy in his heart even though he's in prison. Okay, so verse 12. Let's go back over to Philippians. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorium guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. 
Okay, so there's a lot here. First of all, Paul's saying that he chose joy, even though he's got these circumstances, he's in prison, it's completely out of his control. It's his salvation that gave him this joy. At the same time, he's saying, don't worry about my imprisonment because even this imprisonment, God works even through difficult times in very positive ways. You can see he's saying his imprisonment has become well-known everywhere, and he's mentioning the Praetorian Guards. These are the hand-picked bodyguards of the Roman emperor. These are usually people who are in the upper echelons of society. These are really special bodyguards that, by the way, were being chained to Paul each day. A new one would come in, and can you imagine being chained to Paul for the day? So Paul was taking that opportunity. Many of them uh, placed their faith in Jesus Christ because they saw that Paul was a good man and the charges against him were false. Yet they were Roman guards. They had to guard him. And Paul preached the gospel to them. And at the same time, you can see that other Christians became less fearful to then share the gospel to others. They were encouraged because, number one, they saw the courage that Paul had He was still preaching the gospel, even though his life was on the line, being in prison. And at the same time, I think there may have been a little of this going on. You know, there may have been people, and some of you may feel like this from time to time. It's like, you know, I'm not very eloquent. Paul's got this. Our preacher's got this. I don't really need to be sharing the gospel. That's not my job. Well, here, Paul's been taken off the battlefield. I mean, he's in prison. So that, I think, also empowered them. It's like, well, Paul's not here. Yeah, he's at least sharing the gospel with the prisoners, but we got a whole bunch of people here. And so we've got to do our part to share the gospel with others. And Paul's saying, look, God's even working through this really difficult circumstance. It may be a bad thing, and yet the Lord is using it in a very powerful way to bring others to Christ, not only through his imprisonment, but now through others who were out sharing the gospel because they were hearing about Paul's imprisonment. And I'll just refer you quickly over to Romans 8:28 because I think this is an example of that. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so he's using this very difficult situation with Paul being in prison And it's not only converting the prison guards, but now other people are being empowered to go out and share the gospel to everyone else. And that gave Paul tremendous joy. And they're saying that God's going to protect them. He's protecting Paul in prison, and so they can go out and share the gospel and not be worried about it. By the way, it's the Holy Spirit that's doing the work anyway. So we've just got to trust the Holy Spirit and speak up to people when we feel the Holy Spirit prompting us to do so to others. Okay, these next few verses, let me go through them. It's kind of a longer little passage, these next four verses, but let me read through it, and then I'll come back and try to bring some light to it. Verse 15, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So what he's talking about here 
and unfortunately, I think this even happens in some of our churches today. These are believing, faithful pastors that he's referring to. They are teaching the gospel. And he says some of them from goodwill, so they're doing the right thing. But some of them are jealous. They're jealous because of Paul. They're jealous because of the influence that Paul has. They may be jealous because of the way Paul has this ability to share the gospel that brings others to faith. And they may be jealous of that. That's what he's saying. There's some that are preaching the right thing, but their hearts aren't right. They're doing it from envy and their hearts are envious of either Paul or others. And Paul's saying, look, you know, some of them may have selfish ambition. Some of them may have impure motives. But just the fact that they're teaching the right gospel, I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to have joy because of that, because at least it's getting out. The gospel is getting out. Christ is being proclaimed. So I'm going to rejoice in that. It also shows us that even people who may not have the right heart or motives, but they're doing the right thing, God can still work through that as well. You're not going to mess up God's word. If people are speaking God's word, God can work through that. Their heart may be all messed up. They may be messed up on the outside, but you're not going to mess up God's word. I take that as some encouragement to me as well, that when I'm teaching or trying to proclaim God's word, God's going to honor that and make good use of that somehow. Even if I mess something up, he'll figure out a way to make that good if I'm actually reading God's word. Verse 19, For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall, even now as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. So this deliverance that he mentions in verse 19, it could be his deliverance from prison that he was praying for and hoping for. And he's saying that even through their prayers that possibly they were praying for his deliverance from prison and his current affliction. Or Paul could be talking about his salvation. And I think that may actually be the better reading because you see there, at least in my note, the original language there is talking more towards salvation. And so Paul, he knows where he's going. He knows his salvation is secure. That's really what the original text is talking about, is his salvation. And it's through the provision of the Holy Spirit that is enabling him to get through what he's going through now, but that's nothing because he's assured of his salvation. And that is his expectation. And that is his hope that he is going to be delivered for eternity to spend it with Jesus Christ. Let me show you one thing on prayer. If you'll go over to the right, we're going to go to the book of James. It's towards the back. It'll be after Hebrews. So keep going to the right. You'll find Hebrews and just keep going. And then you'll get to James. And I want to look at James 5, verse 16. And it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So God while God knows how everything's going to turn out, God wants us to pray. And our prayers do have an impact. And so you have it right here. It says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So Paul appreciated that they were praying for him, the believers in Philippi. 
And that's what we should be doing for others as well, is praying for them. Let me also show you, go over to the left to 2 Corinthians verse 1. So that's just to the left of where we were in Philippians. And let's jump in at verse 5. Paul says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. Well, we could go on. We're all persecuted. We all face trials. We all have troubles. Now, we're probably not going to be thrown in prison like Paul was. But Paul was fine. Whatever circumstances were going on on the outside around him, that didn't bother him at all. He knew that Christ was at work through every circumstance, and that gave him tremendous comfort. He wasn't fearful of that. He trusted in God's plan. So much so, he trusted it whether he lived or died. Let me show you another verse. Go over to Romans, again, a little bit further to the left, before Corinthians. And let's look at Romans 14, verse 7. It says, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And so Paul trusted God. If God wanted to take his life, he knew he was going to be with the Lord. If Christ wanted him to be in prison, that was okay with him too. He was going to be full of joy no matter where he was. He says in verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So when we die... Paul is making it very clear. When we die, we are going to immediately be with Christ. Let me show you a couple of verses on that. Luke 21, 43. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, third gospel. Luke 23, 43. Let me set this up. You'll know the story. This is where Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's got two criminals, one on each side of him. One starts giving him a hard time saying, if you're the Messiah, save yourself, save us. The other one on the other side of him says, look, we both deserve to be here. We're both criminals. We've lived a life as criminals. This man, Jesus, is blameless. He doesn't deserve to be up there. And he turns to him and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here we'll see in verse 43. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so you can see that when we die, we are with Jesus. And then one more verse just to give you some assurance. Go a little to the right. We'll go back over to 2 Corinthians and we'll look at 2 Corinthians 5.8. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So as soon as we die, our soul goes and joins with Jesus and we will be with the Lord.
Verse 24, Paul is clearly saying if the Lord had work for Paul to do and wants Paul to remain here and continue to do work to bring others to salvation, then Paul wanted to serve the Lord and help other people place their faith in Jesus Christ. And that was fine with him too. Verse 25, And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all. There it is again. I love it. Continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So he took great joy from watching people continue to grow in their faith and mature in their faith through the sanctification process and the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So Paul was enthusiastic about his ministry to them, and he knew it was Christ working through him. It wasn't anything he was doing. It was certainly evidence of the Holy Spirit working in him. And the Philippians, just seeing their faith, gave Paul great confidence because he saw the work of the Holy Spirit in the believers there in Philippi. Verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's saying that they're to maintain their spiritual commitment. He doesn't know if he's going to get out of prison or not, but he wants them to continue to work together, live their life in accordance with the gospel and as faithful citizens of heaven, and continue to live consistent with the truth that Paul had revealed to them through the gospel, and that they're going to be accountable to Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, don't look to me as Paul. He's saying, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, because we're going to be accountable to Christ. Work together using the gifts that God has given us, and use those in a way to bring others to Christ. In verse 28, he says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So we shouldn't be terrified of people who may say wrongful things about us. Remember, a lot of times when you're actually sharing the gospel with people, you're going to be rejected. And they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God or they're rejecting the message that you're giving them. We shouldn't be terrified of them. We should have this joy and this peace because of our salvation that we're assured of. Verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. And so Paul's saying, look, just have confidence. You're going to go through some difficult times. Paul is sitting there in prison in Rome, may lose his life, eventually will, but he's at peace. He knows where he's going, and he knows God is doing works through him. Let me just show you one more verse. Go over to 1 Peter 1. So that's way over to the right. Before Revelation, we were in 1 John. It'll be just before that. So if you can find your way back over to 1 John, 1 Peter is just before that. And let's look at 1 Peter 1. And I'll jump in at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, 
even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So our trials are temporary. We shouldn't ask why when we're going through trials. If we can learn to ask, okay, what are you trying to teach me? If we can just begin to develop that kind of discipline, like why is this happening to me? Instead, okay, God, what are you doing with this? What am I supposed to learn from this difficult time? I don't like it. It's okay to tell him you don't like it. He knows you don't like it. And I don't think he's telling us to be happy when we're going through really difficult times. I mean, if you lose a loved one, how are you supposed to be happy? I don't think he's telling us to be happy. I think we should have joy knowing that no matter what's happening around us, we should have joy and peace internally that, well, when we end up like that, if a loved one has departed, we know where we're going. And we should also look at, okay, how is God using this particular circumstance either draw me closer to him or draw others closer to him when they see the peace that I have in spite of the terrible tragedy that I'm suffering through. Believe me, God uses every one of those or wants to use every one of those circumstances in a very positive way, and they're necessary. We typically don't change when things are rocking along great. That's not where you see us grow. Where we grow in our faith is usually when we're going through a difficult time. And God wants to use those trials to help us grow and to help others grow when they see how at peace we are, even when we're going through our own trials. And I think in this text, Peter's saying that our salvation is more precious than gold. It can't perish. So there's another place that we should take great comfort in the assurance of our salvation. That's the outcome of our faith. Our salvation is assured, and that should give us inexpressible joy, knowing that God has given us our salvation by his grace. He's going to protect that inheritance that we have, and we've just got to trust God even when we're going through difficult times and through our trials. So let me just kind of summarize this. We need to trust God and his plan and to have joy and try to be the instrument of his plan no matter in good times and even when times are tough, we should know that God sees and knows everything that we're going through. And he knows it's not fun for us, but he wants to use that in a very powerful way if we will let him. And even through that, we should continue to have peace and internal joy, knowing that this is just temporary, this affliction that we're going through. It's just temporary, particularly in light of eternity. If we can even live our lives, not that you don't enjoy the life that you have here and all the blessings that God has given us, but like Paul, God wants me here. I want to do his work, but have the love. I'd rather be with Christ right now and be through with all this nonsense I got to deal with every day. But if God wants me here, then I want to be a good servant and I want to allow him to work in and through me and just thank God for the peace and joy that he's given us that comes from knowing of where we're going for eternity and that our sins are going to be forgiven and that we'll have eternal life with him. And finally, when we have fear, I think Satan uses fear as a way to draw us away from God. We shouldn't have fear. If we're trusting God and we truly believe that God is in control of everything, there's no reason for us to have fear. 
And if we feel fear coming on, we should ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and just remind us that God's got this and we need to trust God in whatever we're doing. So I'd love to hear any comments or questions or input that you all have from the lesson today. You can see this is a very different letter epistle than what we've been reading in Corinthians and Galatians. I think it's just cool to see that, you know, you read the fruits of the Spirit and it sounds well and good, but it's like, what does that look like? And then you flip over to the next book, you're like, oh, that's what it's looked like. He's in prison, he's wrongfully accused, he hadn't done anything wrong, he's looking at a death sentence, and look how excited he is about those circumstances. Like that, that to me is pretty amazing. We were reading about these fruits of the Spirit and it's like, yeah, I want all of that. But how does it actually show up in my life? We can't make it happen on our own. I mean, I'm probably just like everyone else. When things don't go my way, I get frustrated very easily. Even if somebody, some slow car is in front of me in the left lane on 71, I become very easily frustrated. Somehow I'm supposed to be at peace and joyful at that point in time, even though this idiot that's going 10 miles under the speed limit is just parked in the left lane. That's very difficult for me, but I'm not in prison. And look at Paul. He's in prison and he's got tremendous joy. You never hear Paul complain. Never complain. And I'm complaining because I'm having to go 10 miles an hour under the speed limit for a brief period of time until this idiot will get out of the way. I think God is probably trying to do something in that moment. Honestly, he's probably trying to work on my patience. I'm sure there is something there that God is trying to do, and it's probably because I'm so messed up. My heart is messed up. I'm not feeling a lot of love for that idiot in front of me at that point in time. Does that resonate with anybody? (laughs) How about verse 6? Do you all think of that from time to time? Is that a meaningful verse to you all? Is that one that you've come back to? I think of that verse sometimes when I'm helping others that may have a son or daughter that has gone off to college and thought they did everything they could when they were growing up to help them come to faith and share the gospel with them. And, you know, they may even been going to Young Life or been in a small group or a youth group or whatever. It, it looked like, okay, you are ready to go off to college. And they go off and their mind gets filled with all the nonsense that they're taught these days. And it's like, man, all of a sudden... You just wonder, what do they believe? What do they believe now? And this verse 6 has brought comfort to me as well as many others that it's pretty clear that they had saving faith, that God's not going to let them get away. It's kind of like the prodigal son. They may wander off for a while, and unfortunately, they're going to probably have to go through some really difficult times, and then God will use that to bring them back. And it's going to be hard to watch when they're going through that really difficult, whatever it is they're going to have to suffer through in order for God to draw them back, you just watch it happening and you just go, gosh, I wish there was something I could do to intervene. And they're going to have to go through it. Yeah, this, this verse is especially powerful to me because uh, I've seen it. And it's Just remember, life's a journey. We, we, we don't see God's plan all the time and what that journey entails. But we just got to stick with it, stay focused. Keep in prayer. Prayer is so important. And that's what Paul was talking about. He appreciated their prayers and yet, and he continues to pray for them that they will continue to grow in knowledge and wisdom and in their faith. And that's what we've got to do for others. 
And if you've got a son or a daughter or a family member or a friend, you may even have a friend who used to go to Bible study with you, went to church with you, and now all of a sudden it seems like they've fallen away. Just take confidence. Paul says he's confident. He has confidence of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a promise. And so if they truly had saving faith, they're not going to slip through the cracks. God will have a way of drawing them back in, but we should continue to pray for them. We want the very best for our kids, and it can be very stressful on any of us to have a child that you're worried about like that. First of all, we don't know, we never know about anybody. That's really between them and God. I've had some people ask me sometimes, hey, is so-and-so, or are they a believer? It's like, well, outwardly from what I see, it sure appears that way, but that's between them and God because I can't see their heart, but I can see the outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their life, and there's things that only the Holy Spirit can do through people, and so I think you can have somewhat of an understanding of whether they had true saving faith at some point by just seeing the change that happened in their life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that's the case, I mean, we should at least have confidence in verse 6 that the Lord's not going to let them slip through his hands. That's what he said. So they may be on a tough path right now, and it's going to be ugly to watch. They may have to go through a really terrible trial in order for God to get their attention and draw them back. We wish we could prevent that. But then again, we want to prevent our own trials, you know. Too many times I find myself praying this, save me from the trial. But that's not biblical. If you go and look at the story of the three boys that were thrown into the fire because they wouldn't worship King Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol, they didn't pray to be saved from the fire. They didn't say, Lord, please keep us from going in the fire. They didn't pray that at all. They said, We know our God is capable of saving us from that fire, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to that image. And basically, we know God will be with us. And then you read on in the story, sure enough, there's a fourth figure dancing in the fire with them that is probably Jesus Christ with them, saving them from the fire. And they come out of the fire and they don't even smell like smoke, not burnt, nothing. So that story always tells me I'm praying the wrong thing. I shouldn't pray to not go in the fire. I should just pray and say, be with me and the Holy Spirit will be with us. Just give me the strength to get through the fire and trust you and know that you're with me and teach me what it is you want me to learn as I go through that fire. And then that story I love as well because then what happened? They go through the fire and what happened after the fire? All the people who were there All the folks from all over the place who were watching that happen, they all gave glory and honor to God. And even Nebuchadnezzar said, if anybody speaks ill of their God, bad things are going to happen to you. So in the end, they had to go through the... Thank you for joining us today. We'll begin our study of the letter of Paul to the Philippians. We'll be discussing the joy and peace we should have as Christians because of the assurance of our salvation. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, we'll begin our lesson. But it had an impact on everyone else who was watching the peace they had as they went through the fire. You see what I'm saying? It's a wonderful story. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. 
If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this podcast and my weekly blog by sending a text to 56316, type Larry in the text box, and hit send. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.